Our reading today is from Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 to 21. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favour in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree, while I may bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, kneaded and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And so reads God's word. Welcome to you. If you join us while we were singing, my name's Mark. I'm one of the leaders here uh, at the church. And uh, it is great to see you all this morning, especially with a, a slightly more awkward uh, Sunday with the, with the marathon being on. Uh, it's one of the issues of being a, a city center church. Uh, I, uh, I dreamed a dream in times gone by when hope was high and life worth living. I dreamed that love would never die. I dreamed that God would be forgiving. Then I was young and unafraid and dreams were made and used and wasted. There was no ransom to be paid, no song unsung, no wine untasted. But the tigers come at night with their voices soft as thunder. As they tear your hopes apart, as they turn your dreams to shame, I always wanted to be a thespian. Uh, and so that was just my little monologue moment there. Anybody recognize that song? That's I Dreamed a Dream, isn't it? From Les Miserables, uh, sung by Fontaine. 
uh, at the at the very end, really, of her journey. Just about it's a song about the loss of innocence and of wonder, a loss of hope. It feels like one of the inevitable things about growing up is to become, I don't know, a little bit, a little bit more jaded about life. Like I say, oh, I'm, not, I'm not cynical, I'm just a realist. When we're kids, our imaginations run wild. Every cloud is a dragon, every shadow is a monster. Our imaginations are full of color and life and wonder and everything. Even the, the season that we're getting in as we prepare for, for Christmas time is full of childlike wonder. And we kind of, as adults, we kind of think, well, I've got to live vicariously through the little ones who kind of see uh, all, just the goodness and the glitz. And, you know, I've got to work a job and I've got to save up all of the money to make sure that we pre- prepare the meal and host. And it's just stress, stress, stress. When you're a kid, you actually get all of the, the wonder and imagination. And then when you grow up, you're told that, well, those things are they're silly and they're childish and it's time to move on. Or maybe actually what ends up happening is that the things that you've experienced in your life, uh, they rob you of a sense of wide-eyed astonishment at the world. And things have happened in your past that have l- led you to become particularly cynical or jaded or skeptical about relationships and, and you feel kind of stuck in that. But even if that's not you, we all kind of grow up and we get stuck in this world of adulting. That's kind of what happens in the, uh, in the movie Hook. That's portraying how old I am. Um, in the movie Hook, uh, Robin Williams. Robin Williams has uh, forgotten that he's Peter Pan because he's got so obsessed with his career and with money and with, with power and with, with advancement and success. And the whole movie is about him remembering that, that childlike wonder. And it's only when he remembers the, uh, his imagination again that he's able to, to fly because he's Peter Pan. When did you lose your wonder at the world? When did you become a realist? When did your childlike amazement sap away? Was it something that happened or was it just a slow creep of realizing the stories that you were told that there was more to them? We bring that cynicism to church, don't we? We can be jaded when we learn about God, especially when we hear stories uh, that have become so familiar because familiarity has this tendency of breeding contempt. We kind of think, yeah, yeah, I know that. Or you think of the world that you spend the vast, vast majority of your time in. Imagine the people that you work with, the people that you're in class with, you tell them that you believe certain things about the world, that you believe certain things about God, or you believe in, in miracles, it makes as much, but as much sense to them as, as going up to them tomorrow morning and say, well, it's back holiday tomorrow, but Tuesday morning, and say, hey, do you know what? I've just come to a profound belief in the Easter Bunny. People look at you like you're crazy. And that's what people think about 
why you're here this morning. And maybe actually you've been brought along here this morning and you think that the person who brought you is crazy. The answer is, they probably are a little bit. They probably are. There's a kind of pressure, isn't there, to, to grow up and to, to leave these beliefs behind us. But is this really all we have left? Just because cynical realism? Wonder feels like it's quite important, doesn't it? It's quite nice to have an imagination. One of the things that maybe we forget is that actually our imagination is a sense organ. It's how we sense things like love and like hope. You don't see love. You don't really hear love. You don't taste love. You sense it, though, don't you? So what do you sense it with? You sense it with your imagination. You sense it with your sense of wonder. And so your sense of wonder is important, actually, for uh, being able to operate in the, in the world. Your sense of wonder is an important thing because it calls you out of yourself. It helps you to, to glimpse something beyond the material. To be a Christian is to be a supernaturalist. That is, that we believe that there are things that are purely beyond this material world. That there are things that are beyond this material world that are possible. The chief example within Christianity would be the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, right? We don't believe that that's a metaphor. I was just talking this week uh, to my barber about this. Uh, yes, I did get a haircut. It's okay. You don't need to say anything. Uh, but big shout out to, to Billy, who's probably going to listen to this sermon. Um, but the resurrection, the resurrection, we don't believe it's a metaphor. We believe that it's actually something that happened in history. Christians are by nature supernaturalists. And what's more, if you're sitting here thinking, okay, you're telling me about the Easter bunny right now. Let me make a case for that, that that's not actually all that illogical. That it's a very appropriate belief for a Christian because you see, to be a Christian is to believe that there is a God who exists outside of this material system. That outside of the natural laws that govern our world is a natural law giver. One who made and who therefore has the power and rights, the prerogative, to tinker with those natural laws. And hey, that's all a miracle is. It's a tinkering with the laws of nature. And who else better to do it than the one who made them? So within a Christian worldview, it's an extremely logical thing to conclude that Christians might be supernaturalists. Life and sin and suffering, they steal our wonder, they jade our imagination, they taint our amazement at the world, but you and I were made for a sense of wonder. We're made to have our senses captivated by awe. We're made to have our imaginations stimulated. We're, we're made to forget ourselves and enjoy realities far higher and richer and more wonderful than we could ever create for ourselves. At the heart of this passage, and we're really only going to go to verse uh, 15, uh, all of the, uh, the Sodom and Gomorrah stuff is going to come into the, into the following, week, uh, following weeks. But the, the heart of this passage, Genesis 18, 1 to 15, is this question that God himself asks. He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? That if there is a God, then wonder is possible. Awe is a right response because of who he is and what he does. 
So we're going to look at this passage around three things. Three things to marvel at. Three things to wonder at. First, wonder at the friendship of God. Wonder at the friendship of God. The passage opens with a slightly strange scene. It's the hottest part of the day. The morning's work is done and 99-year-old Abraham is settling down for a siesta at the door of his tent. He looks up and suddenly he sees three men. That's what we read in verse 2. Let me remind you. He lifted up his eyes and looked. and Behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. He runs, he bows down to them. Clearly, Abraham recognizes that there is inherently something very important about them, supernatural even, about these visitors. Because when he addresses uh, the central one, he says, my Lord, that is my Adonai. There are a couple of different uh, primary ways of talking about God in the Old Testament. The first is Yahweh or Jehovah. Um, that's the capitalized, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. But the, but the Jews didn't like, don't like to take that name on their lips for fear of blasphemy. So they tend to use the word Adonai. It means Lord or Master or Sir. But he seen, tends to, he seems to perceive something that is quite important special, supernatural even about this person. And certainly as the story unfolds, we find out that he's right, that it is indeed the Lord himself. So if you, if you were casting your eye down, you'd see that actually uh, the author does begin to capitalize the L-O-R-N-D. And in the start of chapter 19, chapter 19, verse 1, one of the things that we read there is that the other two guys are actually angels. Let me just uh, nip ahead just to show you that. Verse uh, Verse uh, 1 of chapter 19, the two angels came to Sodom that evening and they were sitting at the gate uh, where Lot was sitting and he was sitting at the gate of Sodom. These are the two angels that were with the Lord that have journeyed on to Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abram's response here is, it's swift, it's unexpected, it's lavish. He runs to them. You may indeed actually come from a culture where grown men running is not the done thing. And that's what, the way it was uh, in the ancient Near East. It was a sign of, of you forgetting yourself, uh, forgetting your position in a society where honor and pride were the only thing that matters. He dismisses all of that. And this 99-year-old man runs to them and he bows down low as a sign of, of his humility. And he invites them. He begs them not to pass him by, to... To, uh, so that they might come and dine with them and that he might give them, as he says, a morsel, a morsel of bread, a morsel. He runs into the tent and he says to Sarah, we're going to need three sailors of flour, need three sailors of flour and make cakes. And because I'm sure that the last time you baked, uh, you weren't measuring out in sailors. So you have no idea how much that is. Let me tell you, it's six gallons of flour. Goes, he runs in and says, get six gallons of the best flour and knead it into bread. Like she's there, just working all afternoon, making this bread. And then for these three people, he goes then to the field and he kills a whole cow for them. And this meal 
has courses. It's not just meat and bread, but it's followed by milk and curds. That's dessert. It's uh, moving from the savory through to the, to the sweet. It's the ancient Near Eastern cheese board at the end of the meal. It's lavish. The only modern equivalent to this level of lavish culinary generosity, it is only found when a son comes home to his mother. It's the only place. The daughters don't get it, I don't think. Sons get it, though. When the, when the boy comes home, would you like a little bit of dinner? Sure, I've just, I've just put on something small. That's the Irish mammy version. It's just a little bit. And you walk in, and the dining table is like the banqueting hall in Hogwarts. This is why I am the way I am, because I'm an only child, and I'm an only son. You see, you're now getting an insight into, you know, I've just made you a little bit of dinner, but that's what Abraham's doing. I just want to give you a little morsel. Six gallons of flour later and a whole cow. Maybe he was Irish. But in the midst of all of the food and the strangeness, there's something really wonderful going on. It's that God's come to have dinner with this guy. God. Of a, the God of immeasurable glory, the God of endless holy purity, the God who dwells in the, in the shimmering halls of eternity has come down to have steak sandwiches with Abraham. This is the only time in the Old Testament that this happens. It's the only time that God sits in fellowship with another human being in the Old Testament. He dines with him. And you know, don't you, that to dine with someone, to have somebody in your house for food, it is a sign of friendship and honor. You don't tend to have your enemies around. It's a very intimate thing to break bread together. It's a, it's a sign of friendship and of closeness and of loyalty. Let's just refresh our minds as where, to where this meal comes off the back of. Last week, if you weren't here, uh, you missed it, but we were talking a lot about circumcision. And it'd be good to go back and talk about that for another 20 minutes or so, wouldn't it? No, no. Uh, <laughs> it comes right off the back of the covenant of circumcision. And that, that covenant, what is a covenant? Covenant is a binding promise, a pledge that, that cannot be broken. And there in that covenant, God has pledged himself to Abraham and to his descendants, to be God to him and to bless them. And one of the things that you need to realize is that in the Bible, every covenant, every binding promise has a sign and a meal. The sign of the covenant here was circumcision. And now we are having the meal. Why do covenants have signs and meals? Well, because the meal brings the, it brings the promise out of the realm of just a legal contract, a legal agreement between, uh, between two uh, distinct and separate parties. And it makes it personal to share your table with someone. And that's what's going on here. God is saying, you know, I, 
I pledged myself the chapter before that I would be, that I'd be God to you, that I wouldn't forsake you, that I would be close to you. And here in the next chapter, God comes down and eats with Abraham. For us as Christians, we have a meal. A meal instituted by the Lord Jesus. It's the, it's the Last Supper, isn't it? What we've come to call the Lord's Supper or Communion. You might have even come from a background that calls it the Eucharist. Eucharist just is the, is the, it's the Latin word for thanksgiving. And Jesus institutes this meal and he says things like, this is the cup of the new covenant, like the new binding pledge and promise that I am making with all of humanity. That's made in my blood, that I'm the one that's cut off in order that you might be brought near. And the remarkable thing about this is the thing to wonder at this morning is that what this means is that friendship with God is no longer a unique event, a one-off thing for Abraham in the Old Testament, but it is a present reality for all who trust in Jesus. How astounding that the God of the universe would invite you to dinner and call you his friend. It's possible, maybe even likely, that sometimes we come to this table and we don't really think about what we're doing. And we're kind of just going through the motions because you're like, oh, there's only two songs today. So quick, get up, got to get down and get the bread and wine. And we, we lose part of the significance of actually what's happening here is that God is inviting us back into friendship with him. He's drawn us into relationship with himself. And unlike Abraham, we don't, we don't prepare the food. We come forward and our, our hands are empty. And he feeds us. and He nourishes us. He calls us friend. Because he was, after all, the one who dined with sinners. And he dines with us still. Have you lost your wonder, Christian, at the friendship of God? That he would come down and make himself humble so that he might share your table or put it a different way, that he might invite you to come and share in his table. Maybe just before you come down this, this time, you might, or as you take the bread in your hands, as you lift those tiny little cups, you might just think to yourself, what an amazing thing that the God who dwells in this resplendent, glorious halls of eternity meets me in this meal and calls me friend. Wonder at the friendship of God. Secondly, wonder at the power of God. At the center of this passage, again, is the promise of a son. By this time, it's been 25 years since God first made the promise. And finally, now that Abraham is 100 years old, just about, God is saying, this time next year. That's what we read in, in verse 10. The Lord said, 
I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Then Moses makes this comment in verse 11. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in years. And the way of women had ceased with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself. What does it mean that the way of women had ceased with Sarah? Verse 11, uh, that's uh, Moses essentially saying, Sarah is not just old, Sarah's gone through the menopause. We'd already read right back in in 1130 that she had struggled to conceive. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 30 said that that Sarah was barren, very old fashioned, um, quite hard word to hear, somebody who's struggling with with infertility. Uh, But now, now Sarah's actually She's postmenopausal. The way of women has ceased with her. That's what that verse means. That, that any hope of having a son had finally and completely faded after decades of trying and hoping and praying and weeping and, and nothing. And now her body has moved on. And all natural ability to conceive has left her. Why was God so slow? Imagine for a second if, if Sarah had gotten pregnant 25 years ago or, I mean, she, she, was, she was advanced in years then. You know, she was 60, 65 then. Or maybe if it had been 15 years ago or 10 years ago, people would have thought that it was amazing for sure. People would have congratulated her and maybe even praised God that it had finally happened for her. But they wouldn't have necessarily seen it as a miraculous intervention. Just as something that has finally occurred. God was slow in another place. There's a strange passage in John chapter 11. and We we looked at it last year. When one of Jesus' friends, a man called Lazarus, uh, was dying and word was sent to Jesus saying, come, uh, come and heal Lazarus. Like he's close to death. Uh, if you make it down in time, uh, you'll, be able to, you'll be able to heal him. And one of the things that, that John tells us is, he says that when Jesus heard this, he waited two more days. Now he was already two days journey away from Lazarus. So time was of the essence. By the time he, he gets to Lazarus, Lazarus is four days dead. Like Lazarus's body had started to decompose. He waited. Why did he wait before going to the tomb of Lazarus and raising him from the dead? Why did he wait 25 years before saying this time next year, Sarah will have a son? Because sometimes God waits until all hope is lost so that you can be in no doubt that it is him who is working when the miracle comes. He does this to to show that he will do whatever he has promised, no matter how incredible, no no matter how impossible it seems. And so when Isaac is born, 
there's no doubt left in anyone's mind that this child has only come about because of God's miraculous action, because God has acted to keep his promises. Sometimes God is slow. This, I hope, comforts and assures us in a couple of ways. First, it helps us to deal with the slowness of God. You know, how many times have we felt like we're longing for something, we're hoping for something, and that hope is, is fading and fading and fading. And we finally give up on it. And it is in those moments when we have given up all hope that actually God acts in a way that we could never expect, that we could never would have prayed for or dreamed of. I think about this and. Uh, you know, for us as City Church, you know, one of the, one of the constant wrestles and struggles with us uh, as a church and as church leadership is where is our, where's our forever home? Is it going to be the cinema? cinema? We so would long to be in a building that would, uh, that would be a blessing to the city seven days a week. And it just seems more and more and more impossible. We, we were looking at a building just this week. And the cost is just astronomical and it just seems so impossible. I'm tempted to, for all, to allow all of my hope to fade. But I think that one of the reasons why God is slow to give us the desires of our hearts is because he's less interested in giving us what we want than he is in, in growing faith and dependence on him. So that when he does act, he just blows the doors off our, off our life. And they go, oh, that, that couldn't have happened if it hadn't have been for you. But there's also an assurance and a comfort here. There's a reminder in these verses that God is committed to fulfilling his promises, even when they seem utterly incredible. You know, the Bible teaches us that when we are, before we're Christians and when we're far away from God, that we're spiritually dead. You know, Ben opened our time by reading from Ephesians 2. It says, by grace you've been saved. Yes, it's true. You read on up. How does Paul start that passage? It says, but you, you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. We're spiritually dead. People were spiritually like Lazarus. We've turned from God and when we turn from the God who is our life, we can only therefore embrace death. We don't want him. We don't want him to be our friends. We don't want to dine with him with that close relational familiarity. And it seems utterly impossible. It seems utterly impossible that he might change our hearts. Maybe you can think of, if you're a Christian here this morning, maybe you think of somebody in your life, somebody who you love, and it just seems so impossible that God would change their hearts. This passage shows us that time and time and time again, God is committed to his promises, even if they seem impossible. So Jesus says, whoever believes in me will live, even though they die. Or the gift of God is eternal life. We might be tempted to sit there and think, impossible. How could God love someone like me? God couldn't bring me round, couldn't change me. But then the reply from this passage comes back, well, is anything too difficult for the Lord? 
Or maybe you're a Christian and you hear the words of Jesus, all that the Father has given to me will come to me and all those who come to me, I will never drive away. And you think, well, how can this be? How can, Je- how can Jesus keep me knowing all of, my, all of my struggles and all of my sins and I feel like I'm making no progress at all? How could he hold me eternally secure when, when I fail so much? And the answer from this passage comes back, is anything too difficult for the Lord? What's easier? To give a 90-year-old post-menopausal woman a son or to say to you, your sins are forgiven? Answer, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Folks, don't just wonder at the friendship of God. Wonder and stand in awe at the thing which makes friendship of God possible, and that is the power of God. That he would change your heart, that he would move you from death to life. There is nothing too difficult for the Lord. Thirdly and finally, wonder at the kindness of God. Wonder at the kindness of God. The Lord here says, this time next year, Sarah will have a son. And Sarah is, she's in the tent because she's got six gallons of flour to work with, right? So she's in the, she's in the tent. And uh, because it's a tent and not a wall, she overhears the Lord speaking. And we read in verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself. She laughed internally saying, after I am worn out, and my Lord is old. <laughs> you know, the Lord there is Abraham, right? And my Lord is old. Shall I now have pleasure? She laughs. We read in the last chapter, and we didn't deal with it because we were too busy talking about circumcision, um, that when God comes to Abraham and tells Abraham that they're about to have a son, that he laughs as well. Let me remind you of that. Uh, So he laughs, verse uh, 17 of chapter 17, if you're following along in your Bible. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which means he laughed. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall be the father of 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. Abraham laughs. Sarah laughs. Both of these laughs are different and both of these laughs show the kindness and the mercy and the love of God. Abraham's laugh is a a kind of laugh of joyous astonishment. It's a, I I can't believe it. This is too good to be true sort of laugh. Uh, I wish she was here to verify this story today, but she's not. But on our wedding day, uh, when Philippa appeared at at the top of the church and I saw her for the first time, looking beautiful in her, in her dress. I laughed and she was a bit offended. 
because um, she thought that I was laughing at her. Uh, and most grooms, you know, they, they, start, they start to cry and things like that, but I didn't. I burst out laughing. And I had to, I've spent the last nine years trying to explain why I laughed. So let me try and explain to you this morning why it is that I laughed. Was it because I thought that she looked funny? Was it because I doubted whether she would actually go through with the wedding? No, it was a laugh that came from amazement and astonishment that this woman would marry the likes of me. It was a laugh of wonder that this actually seems too good to be true. That this woman is walking down the aisle to, to be my wife. It's that sort of laugh that Abraham is, is responding to God with. But even though Abraham laughs, he still, he still thinks in material terms. Why? Because he loves Ishmael. It is his son after all. And Ishmael's, he's 13 now. He spent over a decade nurturing this boy, playing with him. And so he said, oh Lord, wouldn't you just, wouldn't you just graft Ishmael into the promise? Wouldn't, oh, that he would live before you? And he tries to push Ishmael forward into God's plans. How does God respond? Abraham! More faithlessness. How dare you put this slave girl's woman in or son in front of me? More faithlessness from you. No, he doesn't. Sorry, I didn't mean to scare the children. No, he's gentle, isn't he? He's kind. He's patient towards Abraham. He says, I've heard you, Abraham. I will. Don't worry about Ishmael. I've, I've got him. I will bless him. I'm going to smooth out all of the, the sins behind uh, how he came about. I'm going to bless your son. I've got him. He's in my hand. I haven't forgotten him. But the promise is going to come. It's going to come through this seemingly impossible way. Abraham laughs in wonder and astonishment. And still is thinking in material terms. And God's patient. He's kind. He's merciful to him. Now in this passage, Sarah laughs. Some commentators are quite hard on Sarah. They draw a stark contrast between Abraham and her. They say, Abraham's laugh was a laugh of wonder and astonishment at the goodness of God. And Sarah's laugh, Sarah's laugh was a laugh of cynical rejection and unbelief. I think that's, a, I don't know, man. I think that's a bit hard. I don't, I don't, I don't run with that. Like maybe... But I do, like, I'm going to make a case that I think there's something else going on. They want to say Abraham's laugh was good, Sarah's laugh was bad, but I think, there's, I think there's something else. I think we can make a case that there's something more complicated going on than that. And in order to do that, you have to think like Sarah for a moment. It's been 25 years. God has seemed so slow. She believed, at least at one point, that God was preventing her from having a child. That's what she says in Genesis 16. And now this, when all hope has faded and she's gone through the menopause, maybe actually when she overheard those words, they'd actually landed on her like some sort of cruel joke. Like, why would you say such a thing? This woman who has lost all hope 
It's not that she's in open hostility towards God. She's just sad. She's numb. And so she gives this eternal, internal, not eternal. She gives this internal, hopeless, (laughs) yeah, right, sort of laugh. And who could blame her? How does God respond? He asks in her hearing, because she's just the other side of the tent. Why did Sarah laugh? Now, there's every indication, as I've been saying in this text, that, that this laugh was quiet, inaudible. It was, a, it was an internal thing. It was a kind of a harumph. When God asks about it, she realizes that the one outside the tent can read her thoughts. So he says, why did Sarah laugh? And you can imagine her stepping out of the, of the tent into that noonday sun and she's, she's scared and she's sheepish. And, and so she denies it. Wouldn't you? She goes, no, 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 I, did, I didn't. And what does the Lord do? Faithless, I reject you. How dare you lie to me? That's one of the big 10 that I'm going to talk about in a few hundred years time. Thou shalt not lie. No. He just says, no, but you did laugh. There's something actually really wonderful in that. He doesn't gloss over it, but neither does he judge her. He just says, no, hold on. Come on. We both know you did. Here's the point. Not all unbelief is the same. There's an unbelief that is an open hostility to God, a a rejection of him and of his lordship over this world and his lordship over us. We just hate the very thought of it and we reject it outright and that's unbelief. And, And God is opposed to that unbelief. It's a very scary thing to approach God with that sort of heart. And I encourage you not to do it. The call of God is to turn from that in humility and repentance. But then there's another kind of unbelief, isn't there? There's an unbelief that arises from hopelessness of years and years and years of never never having the promises of God realized, of being so wearied and robbed by life that any glimmer of hope and comfort is just rejected because it's too hard to, it's too hard to raise your hopes again because you've been disappointed so many times. And so you just dismiss it out of hand. It's the unbelief of the hopeless. How does God respond to you If you're coming here this morning and you don't believe, but actually you don't believe because so much has happened in your life that it's hard for you to grasp onto any hope anymore. That it just all, it all seems too good to be true. It all seems kind of too fanciful. And so you're, you've kind of gotten hardened to what we, what we're talking about here and what we're saying because of 
what you've experienced? How does God respond to you in unbelief that arises from a kind of hopelessness? God doesn't judge you who feel that way. He's gentle. He corrects you. He says, no, no, you did laugh. No, don't be hopeless. There's another instance of this in Jesus' life and ministry. There's a, there's a dad whose, whose son is, uh, is dying. Uh, his son is uh, being possessed by an evil spirit and that evil spirit is, is causing his son to be thrown into the fire when it's lit or to be drowned in the well. When it's, and and this, this, this man, is just, he's just at the end of himself. He's tried everything and he comes to Jesus and Jesus says a, a, kind, of, a kind of slightly pokey thing to him. He says, all things are possible uh, for those who believe. If you only believe he'll be well. Do you know how the man responds? The man responds by saying, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. What a great prayer. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, there's, there's, stuff, that, there's stuff that I'm holding on to. There's stuff that I get, but there's a whole bunch of stuff that I'm struggling with. And there's, there's things that have happened that I'm struggling to make sense of. And it's not that I'm it's not that I'm hostile to you. It's not that I'm just shutting you out. I do believe, but the stuff that I'm wrestling with, how does Jesus respond? Jesus marvels at the man and he heals his son. And it's similar here with Sarah. Sarah is not in outright rejection of God. I don't think. I just think that she's been so mugged by life that it's hard for her to hope anymore. And God is merciful to her. And in a sense, he says, well, Let's see who has the last laugh. In the end, in the letter to the Hebrews, the writer reflects on Sarah and includes her in the great list of the women of faith that are to be admired and, and emulated. Yes, she was hopeless here. Yes, maybe her faith wasn't as strong or as clear as her husband's and she was struggling God didn't reject her out of hand. In fact, he spoke with her directly. And did, they, did those words, did that little correction, just that little, ah, no, you did laugh. Did that little correction, did that start a journey for her of, of deeper faith, of less hopelessness, of moving from, from cynicism to, to greater wonder? Wonder at the God who would come and, and dine with her family as a friend. Wonder at the God who would in a year's time, do the seemingly impossible, confirming all of his promises and that he, in fact, is trustworthy and good. Wonder at the God who looked at her in all of her hopelessness and did not despise her or reject her, but rather guided her gently and yet firmly towards truth and greater faith. This is the God we worship. This is the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is the God who comes and meets us. The Lord Jesus invites us to come and to eat, and to dine as a friend. He invites us to trust his amazing promises, even though they seem impossible for you. He invites you, oh, hopeless you, 
Oh, cynical you, oh, tired and weary you, to come to him and to find your faith deepened, your amazement cultivated as you behold him with fresh eyes. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. If you found this helpful or want to know more about City Church Dublin, please visit our website found in the link below.